welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I'm doing great. Thank you very much. I'm very excited because the uh, new term is about to begin. The students are back. Uh, the city's a buzz. Students are arriving, got their suitcases and boxes and parents and all kinds of things moving into the halls and, and flats and whatnot. So very excited about that. Um, so it's the beginning of the school year, but it's also tomorrow, I guess, the 20th anniversary of the, the 9-11 attacks. And so we thought we'd use this opportunity to sort of reflect upon what those 20 years have meant, what that day meant, um, both in terms of its domestic effect on the United States and, and internationally, uh, and how we kind of commemorate days like 9-11, if there are any sort of analogs to it. Um, I guess 9-11 is one of those days that people, you know, remember where they were. It's like the, the Kennedy assassination. I always remember when I was a kid, people telling me they remembered where they were when, when, when they found out that President Kennedy was shot. And I think for for people younger than that, that 9-11 has the same sort of etching in your brain where you remember where you were and what you were doing on, on 9-11. What, what were you doing? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what I was doing. But first, uh, just to, to, to observe, uh, reflect on that comment you just made, David, I think that's right in that it's one of those days that um, people remember where they were, etc. It's important to bear in mind, apropos of, our, mm. uh, of the comment we made at the outset about students returning, our current group of students, most of our undergraduates, of course, were born after 9-11. They have no memory of 9-11. Right. So for them, it's not unlike us hearing our parents talk about where they were when Kennedy, Kennedy was, was killed. Exactly. So, right. you know, time moves on. And I think 9-11 you know, seems you know, to be such a kind of seminal moment in the, in the uh, history of the, the past century. Mm. Uh, but, but time is passing. And, that's, um, and, the, and, and, and how we think about it, and indeed the 20th anniversary mm. reminds us of that, how we think about it and what it will mean in the next 20 years is probably different from what it has in the previous 20, in the past 20 years. But that's something... Well, that, I, yeah, the commemorations of any events sort of change over time and the meanings change over time as, as people get further away from it. We can talk about... That's right. Yeah. So what were you Sorry, doing? I don't mean to... I didn't mean to jump ahead, but I, no, I, I, I was just thinking about our students who... I was thinking about that this morning, that our incoming undergraduates, you know, will, you know for them, it's, it, it is certainly a histor an historic event. event. Yeah, they've, they've always lived in a... a you know, world where you had to take off your shoes at the airport. They've always lived in a world where, where there were certain there were certain kinds of expectations that were born out of nine eleven. That's right. That's right. Uh, so so I was I remember exactly where I was and uh, because I was cutting the grass. It was an afternoon here, of course. It was the morning mm. in, on the east coast of the United States. Um, but I was cutting the grass uh, um, behind my old flat, our old flat, because I was getting ready to make a research trip to the United States. I was going to go. To uh, I was due to fly out on Iceland Air to America on nine twelve mm, wow, <laughs> on okay. September twelfth, and I was doing as you do all those kind of last minute things you do before you make a trip, and I was thinking, oh shoot, I gotta cut the grass. The grass is too long. <laughs> it's you know I'm gonna be gone for two or three weeks. It'll be too long when I get back. And I was cutting the grass, and one of our friends phoned me, called me, and said. Go put on the TV. This was a, a friend here in Edinburgh, um, an Irish friend, in fact. And she said, you, and I said, what's going on? She said, just go put the TV on. And I went and put the TV on, put the news on. And of course, it was the only thing on the It was the mm -hmm. only thing on television here as, as it was in the U.S. And for the next several hours, next days, really, 
Well, I didn't make the trip. Yes. <laughs> you can imagine. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, for, for the next several days. And I remember my kids were very, very small, and they were watching summer with me. They didn't understand, of course. And it was a, yeah, it was a very, I have a very distinct memory of that day. But as with many things, many of the major events of the past 30 years in the U.S., uh, great and small or great and small in my life, whether it's the Red Sox winning the World Series in 2004, I have experienced them at a distance. So mm. I'm, I'm acutely interested and attuned to what's going on in the United States. But uh, my experience was probably very different from yours. So what was yours? So uh, in 2001, I was a high school teacher in, in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, at that point, I've been doing that for a couple of years, um, and I was teaching that day, um, and I had gotten in. So the, the school day already begun. Oh yes, the school day had because it had already, had already begun, um, and I had gotten in the custom in the previous year during the the Florida recount of I had a computer in my classroom of of checking CNN between classes to check on the Florida recount and what various counties were doing. Um, and so I had done that and, and saw that a plane had hit the, the first tower. And they had the previous summer installed a television in the classroom, sort of a thing mounted on the wall. And so as students were filing in, I think this might have been for second period. So it was like eight. I don't know exactly what time, but early or relatively early in the school day. You know, I turned it on. Uh, and so that we all sort of watched it together. And the sound wasn't working on the television for some reason, so I had to mute it. Uh, and so we, I think we put on, had some closed captions. Maybe. We were trying to sort of make sense of what was happening uh, along with everybody else. Um, and I remember the, the, the vice principal came along after, you know, maybe an hour and a half of this and, Told, was telling teachers to turn turn off the televisions because it was disturbing some of the students, um, and so you know, well after the towers fell, uh, uh, I turned off the television and I think I taught about the uh, Sumerians to that day. We were talking about ziggurats, um, which weird. Um, I remember students asking, uh, you know, who did this, and you know, I posited a couple of explanations because at that point it was very unclear and. Um, you know, my father worked uh, in, in Battery Park, um, not far from the, the Twin Towers. Um, and he's actually one of the only other really big buildings in that part of Manhattan. Uh, and uh, I called him while this was going on. And, and uh, you know, he saw uh, one of the planes fly by his office window very close. And by the time he sort of had run to the uh, conference on the other side of the, his, his uh, floor, it had already hit uh, one of the towers. Um, and I put him on speakerphone so he could sort of give a sort of confused account from on the ground of, of what things were, things looked like uh, to, to my students. Right. Gosh. Okay. I've got, I've got a couple of questions, David. So, so um, it's interesting you mentioned the computer in your classroom because one of the things that strikes me is while the internet certainly existed back mm. in 2001, we were not nearly as wired then as we are now. Yeah. And, you know, I, I you wonder how 9-11... One of the things I thought about in anticipation of this episode was uh, 
and God forbid we find out, but mm. what an event like 9-11, how it would unfold today with mm. Twitter and social media and basically everybody carrying a computer in the, a mm. pretty powerful computer in their pockets and being able to communicate with the world. I think the new, it might have been the last great news event in the sense of this, you've got to turn the television on, as I was instructed mm. by my friend who gave me a caller, as you did in your yeah. classroom. Yeah. We don't necessarily, we still get TV via, sorry, news via our TVs, but we get it a lot of other ways as well. So so it might it might be the last great go turn your TV on event. Secondly, uh, so I've got I've got two related questions. Uh, how did your students react? Because you you were with a group of students. Yes. And 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 the third question is, uh, must have been. How did your dad react? And, and how did how, how did your dad react to both? Uh, you are obviously farming out your teaching that day. It's a typical, <laughs> typical teacher move. Uh, find somebody else to do your work. But but how how did he react to you know to, to to communicating with not just with you but with your students? But what was his experience on the day? Sorry, that's, that's um, several questions. No, it's it's a, a bit of a mess. But uh, so my, he was uh, his building was far enough away from the towers where they they evacuated him, but. Um, you know, he wasn't in any uh, sort of immediate danger. Um, I'm not sure they knew that at the time, but they, they did eventually evacuate him. Um, and obviously the, all of lower Manhattan was, was evacuated for, for a series of days. Um, I think he was, he was okay. I think he, he, he felt safe enough to, to talk about what he saw. Um, but obviously there was just a lot of chaos and the, you know, the conversation probably didn't take more than a few minutes, but I just wanted to make sure that he was safe. Um, and, did he uh, did he know what he was seeing? And by, by this, I mean, none of us knew on the day, but, but I mean, he was, it's different watching it on TV. He had a much different should, experience yes. from us seeing it on TV. He's looking well, out his window. You know, there, there's that window that happened between when the first plane hit and when the second right. plane hit, you know, and there are accounts of people, you know, boarding, boarding the Staten Island ferry after the first tower is hit saying, Oh, I'm going to lower Manhattan. You know, assuming that what happened and that the first plane was an accident, um, you know, and obviously the second plane made it clear that it wasn't. Um, and so I think he was, you know, uh, pretty cognizant of, of what it was, uh, in as much as any of us were cognizant of what sure. it was. Um, you know, and obviously he had been in Manhattan at the during the previous attack on the Twin Towers in in, in nineteen ninety three, I guess. So so you know that the the target wasn't that much of a surprise. Um, you know, my students, um, I was teaching both ninth grade and eleventh grade, ninth grade world history, eleventh grade uh, U.S. Um, uh, Jacksonville has a, a very strong, um, you know military dimension to the city uh, and so a lot of them had had family members who were in the military in various capacities mostly in, in the navy uh, you know and so some of them had thoughts about are the family members safe or the consequences going to be for them of this uh, you know uh, some of the students were, were obviously upset there were you know the questions the school was thinking about do we send the kids home? Do we keep them here? What's the safe place to be? Uh, a couple of my own my own kids, uh, who were quite young at the time, were at a, uh, a Jewish preschool. And uh, the school called and parents and told them to pick up their kids. So my wife picked up our, our two kids from, from preschool uh, early that day, because I think there was a fear that you know, they might be a target or something, or, or that the kids were upset or what have you. Um, it was a very confusing day. 
um, you know, and, and thoughts about sort of, well, we, I mean, we, it was one of those moments, I think, like the Kennedy assassination, where, in very different ways, where we knew that this was, you know, something that was a historic event, that this was going to be, the world tomorrow was going to be different. Thanks for that. Uh, I joke with you that you claim connections to most of the states in the United States by terms of residence and, and some sort of connection. I've had a peripatetic life uh, here but, but 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 leaving that aside and 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 with all respect and affection, you're you're a New Yorker first um, uh, by birth, by and birth, and, and, and much of my childhood. Yes. Right. So, how did you feel as a New Yorker? Uh. Well, I was, cons- you know, I'd obviously been in the towers. I've been a couple times. I've been near the towers a lot. Um, I knew people who worked in that part of town. Um, turns out all, all the people I knew who worked in that part of town, including my father, were, were fine, um, at least uh, physically. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was... You know, heartbreaking to see. I, I obviously I was. I also spent a decent part of my childhood in in Washington D.C. And so, seeing the attack on the Pentagon was also. Um, I mean, these are all all sites. I think that 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 Americans are knew very well, and so I think it hit all of us as being kind of personal, whether we were, you know, born in New York or not. Right. I think we all knew, had a connection to these places, that were. I mean, obviously that's why they well, were selected. But. Yeah, that's right. They were iconic, weren't they? And 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 the the, the, the plane that went down in Pennsylvania, you know, um, or the 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 failed attack mm. um, because the the passengers crashed the plane um, was heading towards the Capitol. We're led to believe, mm. and so these are you know the Capitol, the Pentagon, the Twin Towers. These these were and are very iconic American sites, recognizable uh, around the world as symbols of both American. Well, of American power, among other things. Yeah, to be sure. Uh, and and so you're you're quite right that they, but they were chosen for that reason. How did how what was teaching school like in the in the subsequent weeks days and weeks? Uh, it it was tricky, um, you know, because especially the sort of ages I was dealing with, you know, how do you. What does it students need in that situation is very difficult to ascertain, right? Do they need the regularity and the sort of, uh, you know, the should we sort of soldier on with, uh, you know, doing the rest of the Sumerians and go on to the Hittites later on that, you know, whatever it is we were supposed to do? Um, or, or, or does it make sense to sort of ditch your, your lesson plan and, and focus on what's right in front of you? Um, and the guidance I got from the school was basically to... to to do the former and not the latter. Um, but especially when I was, you know, I was teaching, these were obviously students that were fairly new to me because it was the very beginning of the academic year. So these were not students I knew particularly well. Um, you know, uh, one of the things though is thinking about how that year progressed, uh, you know, especially with the 11th graders who were the U.S. history students, you know, that there were, there were lots of opportunities to, to sort of reflect upon you know how this fit into to u.s foreign policy how it fits into sort of the ways in which the united states is perceived around the world um and obviously that was a very there were lots of other things that happened that year that we sort of followed along with and in subsequent years thinking about maybe you know the 
the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, and what have you. Um, also, things that were incredibly important at the time, but have slightly faded from memory, like the anthrax attacks oh, that fall. Sure. Yes. You know, I mean, there, there was a huge amount of uncertainty in those kind of weeks and months. And then there was the DC shooter, right, 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 uh, which um, uh, people have largely forgotten about. Um, so, so it was a very uncertain time. Um, So yeah, uh, that was a very strange. You know, teaching high school is hard because you're doing a, a million things at once, and when you throw uh, a, a, a traumatic event like nine eleven into it, you, you know you, you really are, are 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 winging it about what the right moves to make are. And I don't know whether I made the right moves or not, but uh, that that was a day of teaching I will I will never forget. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, and in fact, uh, let me take this opportunity because I know we have a lot of teachers among our listeners, mm. including Rene in Vietnam. Thanks for getting in touch. Um, but, you know, because it's not just the start of the school year for us, it's the start, sure. start of the school year for them after what have been a couple of very difficult years. And undoubtedly, this is a difficult year as yes. well. So uh, hats off to all of you. Yes. Uh, but, yeah. uh, uh, sorry, I don't mean to distract no, 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 from no, the nine eleven no, conversation, but, but yeah. um, I, uh, it's a good opportunity to acknowledge how hard yes. teaching is. So let's talk about sort of what the consequences of that day were. Because I mean, I think the, the there are massive consequences of this, and unforeseen consequences of what happened, uh, both domestically and internationally, about that sort of spring out of that day. Uh, what 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 to you are the most important consequences or, or choices that were made in the immediate aftermath of nine eleven that have have sort of reverberated for you? Yeah, good question. I think we should start with the international. Now, mm. maybe this was my perspective living outside of the United mm. States, but but uh, but I think the two are so intimate, you know, yeah, just yeah, inextricably linked. But I think a lot of what has happened domestically grew out of the international response to 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 nine eleven. You may disagree with that, but um, but I think you know where we just in the past few weeks have seen. The ostensible end of the American involvement in Afghanistan. Mm. Well, the the decision was taken in the in the weeks after nine eleven to to go to Afghanistan, mm. um, and that was a very very popular decision at the time. And Donald Rumsfeld famously, you know, he was so enthusiastic about he was the Defense Secretary, of course, so enthusiastic about the image of the U.S. Special Forces on horseback driving the Taliban from power. Do you mm, remember that? Yeah. And the, the, the media picked up that narrative. And this was a kind of moment of kind of both retribution and let's not call it anything but that there was a desire for vengeance on mm. the part of the United States and on the part of the American public which was I think a human response but so there was a uh, element of retribution about that but also I think President Bush and elements of his administration and frankly the media mm. and and uh, people in universities the kind of chattering classes believed this was an opportunity to remake the world. And I, I don't think they were necessarily cynical about that. I, I think they thought, okay, well, this is... All bets are off. We have to respond to this. How can we respond? And I think they thought they might be able to, to remake parts of the world, particularly the, the wider Middle East. Um, uh, and, and I think that, that, I think that was the hope 
<laughs> globally, mm. but it went in all kinds of directions. And frankly, I've got some figures here to share that are pretty awful, but you, you want to respond to that. Well, I think one of the choices that was made immediately after 9-11 was to posit this as an act of evil. Right. Not as an, a, a criminal act, not as a, you know, it, it's above and beyond a, simply an act of terrorism. They, they posited it and they used this rhetoric over and over again that there was sort of a binary between good and evil. And a clash of civilizations. A clash of civilizations. And, you know, that's different than how they dealt with the 1993 attack on the World, on the, on the World Trade Center, uh, which was treated as a, both a terrorist act, but as a criminal act. And, and you arrest the people involved and you prosecute them. It's different than how they dealt with Oklahoma City, which was dealt with as both a terrorist act, but as fundamentally as a criminal act. Um you know, and when you posit that you're fighting against evil, I think one of the consequences of that is is that all the other rules that usually apply no longer apply. You can torture people if you're right. fighting against evil. You can, you know, engage in a behavior that is otherwise morally reprehensible, and and uh, if you are fighting against, you know, this sort of cosmic evil, or you know, it almost seems sort of comic bookish how. Uh, Al Qaeda was depicted uh, in 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 the aftermath of nine eleven, and, and I think you know there's some really devastating consequences. Oh, absolutely. Sorry, I wasn't trying to deny that. No, no, yeah, I, I, I think, no, I think no, we're no, on the same not page. at all. In fact, I, we are on the same page, and I think the crucial decision, if you think about it as a fork in the mm -hmm. road, um, the world we're living in right now. Uh, in many respects as a product of 9-11 and that decision, the fork in the road about treating this as a war on evil, a war on terror as opposed to uh, an horrific crime that had to be addressed as a crime. Mm -hmm. Now I still think the United States would have gone in and, and taken military action in Afghanistan uh, because the, the, the desire to do something was so overwhelming but they could have done that, they could have overthrown the Taliban on horseback and had their movie and, and sort of spent 10 years hunting down bin Laden and killing him. Mm. And that could have been the end of it. But they went in this other direction, as you say. So I'm not disagreeing with yeah. that, but I think that was the decision. But I think the thinking in, say, September, October of 2001 mm -hmm. was this is an attack on us and what we believe in and our allies believe. You know, it was an, this clash of civilizations rhetoric was really, really so commonplace then yeah and so insidious and frankly has set us on the road we're still on i mean yeah you can envision a version of this that doesn't have cia black sites it doesn't have guantanamo bay doesn't have extraordinary rendition doesn't have all these kinds of um war crimes essentially and in one way of thinking about them uh if you had if they had framed it in a different way um, okay, so I think that I think we're in agreement that that's you know a, a critical consequence of this. Yeah, absolutely, and and the the war in Afghanistan bled into and then um, led to the war in Iraq, which was certainly a war of choice, and and we don't have to relitigate mm. that. But the and, and not just those were the two main conflicts, but there were have also been lots and lots of conflicts that have arisen out the Syrian war. Mm -hmm. uh, now, now, uh, which the United States hasn't been as directly involved in, but is certainly uh, 
kind of grew out of the, dis the disorder arising from Iraq, um, conflicts in the in the greater Middle East and in Africa and elsewhere in the world, and the consequences of those, and you've mentioned some of those, have been baneful for the United States and for many of its allies. We've seen the rise of a national security state uh, or uh, national security regimes, not just in the United States, but in many of its mm -hmm. allies, including the UK, um, and, and, and uh, lots of practices have become acceptable in the name of fighting terror that were mm. unacceptable on September 10th, 2001, and frankly would have been unimaginable. Let me give you some figures in terms of what these wars have cost. And these are mainly U.S.-based, but I think they, 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 they're, um, they bear some consideration. So 3,000 Americans approximately died on 9-11. 7,000 U.S. troops have been killed in action in the wars arising from 9-11 which actually isn't that much. Yeah. But that's in part because of the way the United States has chosen to wage war, which in the aftermath of Vietnam is meant to, to minimize U.S. casualties and mm -hmm. maximize the casualties of, of others. 50,000 Americans have been wounded. So that's a pretty significant figure. Part of this, the, the discrepancy there represents the, uh, uh, is a manifestation of the improvements in battlefield medicine, yes. frankly. Yeah. However, 30,000 American soldiers or former soldiers or vet veterans of the of the wars have killed themselves in the past 20 years. So and one can make a reasonable argument that we should add those numbers to those killed in action. Yeah, well, that's why I'm giving you that, that yeah. figure. So that's 10 times the number that, that died on 9-11. According to Brown University's Cost of War Project, 37 million people around the world are refugees, have been displaced and, and are refugees as a result of the uh, wars arising from 9-11. And they've cost $7 trillion. So 9-11 was a horrific attack on the United States. 3,000 dead is a huge number, which we should always bear in mind, especially in the context of this conversation. Mm. Whether the response, and those figures are just the kind of, that's the immediate human cost. It doesn't say anything about the kind of moral cost to ourselves of Guantanamo Bay and extraordinary rendition mm. and torture, etc., um, the kind of moral capital we've expended in the past 20 years, but the cost of 9-11 has been incredibly huge. Yes, oh, without a doubt. Um, you know, and you mentioned sort of the, the, the rise of, of a of police state. I mean, one of the things that happened very quickly after 9-11 is the passage of the Patriot Act in October of, of 2001, and the next year the uh, Homeland Security Act, which created... Uh, the third largest department in the government that was designed ostensibly to fight terrorism to prevent the next 9-11, you know, with a hundred and almost 200,000 employees, you know, and it's a, a department that didn't exist in, in 2000. And, and by 2002, we have this huge government bureaucracy that, that encompassed, you know, agencies that didn't see themselves as being primarily an anti-terrorist force before 9-11 became tasked with doing that. Um, you know, we think about sort of border control. Prior to 9-11, border control thought themselves as controlling illegal, illegal immigrants of, of, of various kinds and, and controlling drug smuggling, you know. And on interviews with, with border agents, that they say that, you know, September 11th changed everything about what their job was and their mission was. He said from that point on, it was about defending the homeland, stopping terrorists, from entering the country, and the supposition was anybody who was trying to enter the country legally 
should be vetted as a potential terrorist, right? And that changes the whole framing of how we think about the border, uh, not only the border with, with, with Mexico, but the border with Canada, which became much more locked down than it was. Uh, it used to be very easy to cross the Canadian border. Yeah, you and, could do it with a library card. I, I joke, but you, <laughs> you, you know, a driver's to, license. Yeah, we used to, and we used to go to Canada all the time when I was a kid, and, you know, I didn't have a passport or anything. I just, we just drove across the border. Um, you know, and, and, and that chain, there was obviously the, the number of deportations increased dramatically starting in, in 9-11, and it has been for the past 20 years. There's lots of reasons for that. I don't want to sort of pin it all on 9-11, but I think the framing of the border has been fundamentally changed. And, you know, all the way up to Trump's border wall and all that kind of stuff. Well, there was, there was already a debate about immigration and illegal immigration, uh, and this was becoming a hot-button issue on the right. Mm. You know, you think of Pat Buchanan in the 90s. However, um, it's a bit like how COVID has changed everything, or how COVID has take, has kind of exacerbated trends that were already under underway, mm. and uh, or developments, and sort of sped them up. And so I think that what we saw with 9-11 was the kind of concern on the part of some about immigration in the United States really amped up and mm-hmm. took on a much more sinister um, aspect, as a, at least in the, among those who are particularly concerned about that issue. And we're still dealing with that, yeah. and we're still dealing with the rhetoric about that and, and the policy surrounding it. There's no doubt about that. So that's a very good example of the kind of, of the way in which 9-11 has just shaped yeah. American development. Uh, and we're using 9-11 as a shorthand. It's the aftermath of 9-11 yeah. and the decisions taken in the aftermath of 9-11. Um, have, have warped almost everything. Thing, right. I mean, I mean, other, other things that struck me as being sort of fundamentally changed is the consequence, the, the rise of a, a kind of, and this is connected obviously with, with Homeland Security, the rise of a kind of surveillance state that didn't exist to the same degree prior to 9-11. You know? Yeah, but I'm waving my phone now. We also, it, it coincided with the development yeah, but, of technologies you know, that made that possible. To be sure. I mean, there's lots of, lots of reasons for this, but, you know, I think... It, in the aftermath of the civil rights movement, uh, you know, there were, there were some lots of protections that were put in place to prevent government surveillance of people because there were some very significant overreaches by the FBI and by other government agencies during that period. All those got washed away, and there was a sort of a sense that, that protecting the homeland overrode the, the, the desire to protect people's privacy uh, to the, the same extent. The militarization of the police, I think, is also a really yep. con- significant consequence. If you look at, you know, the and the, the logic was that, of course, now that everything becomes a target, right? That 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 we need to protect all potential targets of terrorism, uh, in case they decide to terrorists decide to attack the you know, Iowa County Fair or something. Um, you need to have a, an adequate response on the ground, so you have a. a militarization of the police financed by the federal government and the police start to look much more like a military force than like a um, civilian law enforcement body and there's also been a literal trickle down of surplus equipment exactly police forces as well so they you know the kind of equipment designed to invade iraq is now on city streets and or Often in small communities exactly, in the United right. States. Yeah, um, it's like, why, why do you need a, something that looks like a tank to, you know, in small? But uh, th- I think that's a very different sort of framing of how policing works, and that's had lots of effects in the Black Lives Matter movement, the protests, um, 
over the past couple of, of years and the ways in which police have responded to that um, have been shaped in some ways, uh, both directly and indirectly, by 9-11. Yes. Uh, I'm trying to think, David. Um, and I'm not being flippant in asking mm. this. Any good consequences? And I know, let, let me... I, 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 Foreign affairs, and I have the, the issue right here, has, mm. a, has an issue, uh, the, the latest issue of foreign affairs has a, is, is a single issue issue really uh, that says the cover story is who won the war on terror. And it's mm. got a series of essays. There's a really interesting essay in there by a, by a woman named Nellie Lahoud, uh, and she has examined what are the so-called Al-Qaeda papers you know, that were mm. seized when, when um, bin Laden was killed and read thousands and thousands and thousands of emails and text messages and letters and so on uh, sent by Islamic extremists. And the argument, which is quite persuasive, is actually Al-Qaeda's a shadow of its former self and ISIS is pretty... has been, you know, ISIS and Al-Qaeda have been pretty thoroughly marginalized as a result mm. of... of at a great cost, but yeah. and we, we spent the past 15 minutes talking about that cost, but, but have been successfully... Um, defeated at least in military terms and mm. frankly are not as influential as they were even 10 years ago. And so, so is, is, I think that has to be acknowledged. There hasn't been a 9-11 style attack on the United States uh, or as effective in the past 20 years. There have been other attacks, and we think about the 7-7 attacks in London a few years after 9-11. There have been other attacks. Attacks in, in Paris. And yeah, the... but but... The kind of that feeling in October of 2001, say, where we thought this is going to happen all the time for the foreseeable mm. future, hasn't been borne out, at least in the West. That's true, right? We don't know about what didn't happen. Right. And yeah. that is a counterfactual. But, um, you know, if, 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 we, if we had George W. Bush as a guest on the podcast and he's welcome to come. You are welcome, <laughs> George. If, you are, you know, if you're taking a break from the painting, coming on the podcast, happy to have you. You know, he might say, hey, you know, my job was to keep you safe and I kept you safe. Quit moaning, you two whiny, <laughs> you whiny liberals. Um, you, know, it's, yeah. uh, you know, there was a coming together after 9-11. Mm. That yes. lasted a pretty long time. It's now fractured, and we live in a society where everybody hates each other over masks or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, was there any good? I guess not. Sorry, I, I, I'm not saying was 9/11 a good thing, but I, I, you know, in 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 going through this catalog of consequences, do you see any good? Is what I'm asking. That's a very long-winded, uh, long preface. I apologize, but um, if there is any good, and and. I mean, it's hard to find. It'd be hard for us to find any good. But, 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 but I think you know the the one of the things that became very clear on nine eleven, um, and afterwards is is that politics mattered. The, the 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 there were there were there were consequences to choices that were made, and we need to take those seriously. So we elected a game show host president. Well. <laughs> There's another connection there I want to make uh, that, that I think is important, but 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 that you know I think it opened people's eyes in many ways that that you know thinking about the 2000 election where lots of people didn't vote because it didn't matter right like you could say well here's a, a situation where where it mattered and we can one can play out that counterfactual about what Al Gore would have done. Um, one of the consequences I think we're really very much living with right now that I think 
didn't start with 9-11 but got amped up tremendously 9-11 is the, the role of conspiracy theories in American political mm-hmm. life, right? Like all the conspiracy theories that emerged after 9-11 that continue in some circles uh, to be very prevalent in um, thinking about how people relate to that event. Um, you know, I think you can draw a line between the, the 9-11 conspiracies to the birther conspiracies to the QAnon conspiracies to the COVID conspiracies. I think those are all part and parcel of a similar kind of, of discourse that was amped up tremendously as a consequence of 9-11. And that's really fundamentally shaped our politics. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, the, the, the birth of conspiracies in particular, mm. you know, and Barack Hussein, Hussein Obama. Obama. Right, right. Well, you know, why was why was the fact he was, his middle name Hussein, scary to people? Well, it was scary because of this class of civilizations rhetoric that was amped up after 9-11. I, no, I think, I, think you're, I think you're right about that. I think you're right about that. Um, so where does this leave us? Well, yeah, there's a question I think that that's we're going to have reflect upon tomorrow, and and I think we'll be will be reflecting on is what's the right way to think about commemorate this event, right? And one of the things that strikes me about nine eleven is that there was a desire to commemorate that event from the very beginning. If you remember immediately after nine eleven, obviously there were there were lots of, of pictures of, of the the those who were, who were killed in, in the attack that were put up, memorials to them, memorials to to firefighters and first responders of various kinds, um, not only all over New York, but but really all over the world, right? And there was an, a desire to to commemorate the event, thinking about the first anniversary of 9-11, you know, the, the ways in which that was a very solemn moment, and, and, and you know, um, both nationally and internationally, you know, there were monuments erected there's a monument in Edinburgh that was put up on the first anniversary um, to, to, to 9-11. Um, and I think this makes it, you know, the, the idea that you need to commemorate this event so soon after the event makes 9-11 a little bit different than um, some of the other sort of analogs. You know, you know they, they were very quick to put up a memorial to uh, 9-11. The museum opened... I guess the memorial opened in 2011, the museum opened in 2014. Um, there's a Pentagon memorial that opened in 2008. Uh, but before that, there were uh, temporary memorials that went up almost immediately. Um, and I'm not quite sure what, what to make of, of that sort of intense desire by Americans and by people around the world to, to remember this event in a very particular way. No, and how do you stop? I mm. remember um, a very, very prominent historian who I won't name, who's a good friend, saying to me in about 2003 or four. well, the problem with all these people who put flag, you know, American flag decals on their car is you can never take it off, right? You can't take the flag off your car because then you're not being patriotic. Mm. Uh, and, and the implications are the same. And, and to a certain extent... We've locked ourselves in, and we're going to see this tomorrow, and President Biden is going to visit all three sites. He's going to go to Shanksville, Pennsylvania. He's going to the Pentagon, and he's going to Manhattan. Mm. Uh, And rightly so. It's the 20th anniversary. But we're locked into a kind of... It's a parallel to the forever war. We're in a kind Mm. of forever commemoration. 
that is not necessarily healthy. So I, you know, I, I and I, I don't want to be insensitive to people, especially those who lost loved ones. Mm. And so I, I'm going to try to choose my words with care and just ask for a bit of patience. I actually think it's we almost need to stop commemorating it because because of the the all the consequences we've talked about we have to think about how we move to the next phase yeah so i mean are, are we uh, but, but i don't uh, i'm reluctant even to say that i don't know whether 20 years is the appropriate period of time for that i don't know what the 25 is i don't know whether you know I, I mentioned our students at the outset at the top of this episode you know we got a whole generation of people who have no memory of 911 mm. and they will grow in number and the people who remember 911 will mm. diminish in number and maybe this is just the way it goes in 20 years from now it'll be something people note maybe it's even a holiday mm. but you know uh, you know a national holiday of some kind but it's just another thing and maybe that's the healthy way of dealing with it. i don't know cuz and uh, sorry I, i'm not saying people should stop remembering it because we won't stop remembering it anyway. But I'm, I'm, we're locked into this kind of response. It feels like the response. Lawrence Hatter, who's a mm. friend of the pod and a friend of ours, uh, wrote a piece, a newspaper piece that I read yesterday. I think it was in the Inland Empire. And Larry made the he had the observation. He said, if you think about Pearl Harbor, twenty years after Pearl Harbor in 1961, they weren't still in the war that Pearl Harbor caused. Mm. Lawrence made the point. He said, "You know, Afghanistan. They were very keen to end end Afghanistan before the twentieth anniversary. But basically, we've been in the same moment since two thousand and one. There's kind of stagnation. Yeah. Do, do you yeah. see what I mean? Yeah. So, so breaking up on, on the yeah, Pearl, sorry, Pearl Harbor. Because Pearl Harbor, I think, is often used as sort of an analog. Both are attacks on the United States. Both had uh, tragic consequences on the day, obviously, uh, but also." Or the moment that, that pushed the United States into war. And I checked to see, how did they commemorate Pearl Harbor in 1942? So a year on. And so I looked in a variety of newspapers, and they basically didn't. They noted the anniversary, the fact that it had been a year earlier. Uh, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle noted that uh, that that the site of Pearl Harbor uh, it was stronger than ever, and they were ready to fight against Japan again. Um but there wasn't, you know, as far as I could find, uh, commemoration events specifically about Pearl Harbor or you know, moments of silence or any of those kinds of things that that marked the first anniversary of 9-11 and have marked subsequent anniversaries of 9-11. Um, there is a, I found a Office of War Information poster from 1942 that says, Remember December 7th, which I thought was interesting. They didn't actually say remember Pearl Harbor. They said remember December 7th. But they didn't actually start major commemorations of Pearl Harbor until a decade later. The first sort of major commemoration was in 1951. Uh, the Vice President Alvin Barkley went there. Uh, he had been coming back from a trip to Asia, and he went to there was a commemoration there. Uh, but it, but it took a decade before they started to commemorate Pearl Harbor, uh, and it wasn't made a like the anniversary wasn't made a, an official sort of date in the uh, calendar. Guess one, if you can't read upside down my notes. When did Pearl Harbor Day become a thing in at least Congress's mind? 1981. 1994. Gosh. Right? And so, and I think... Why? Well, I think at that point, 
you start to commemorate when the, the survivors are, are no longer with us or, or when the last survivors, you know, when the number of, of survivors are diminishing. And 94, of course, was the 50th anniversary of D-Day. There was a lot of World, World War I, I nostalgia. Nostal- World War II nostalgia. No, World War II, sorry. World War II nostalgia, yeah. That's um, but I think, you know, with most wars, you, you, you have a, a window before you start to commemorate them. You know, when we think about all the sort of Civil War monuments that are now being, uh, some of them being torn down. Um, those aren't a product of, of 1866. Those are a product of, you know, 1896. Um, if we think about sort of when other, uh, I looked at when, uh, memorials to the, uh, the main, I think about another place or moments in where the United States was attacked or at least where a U.S. ship was attacked. Uh, the monument to that in Arlington didn't go up until 1915. So, you know, uh, decade more than a decade and a half after the attack itself um so i think 9-11 is unusual in this in this sort of profound desire by americans to commemorate it and memorialize it and almost immediately thereafter but i think there is a crucial difference in that 9-11 was primarily an attack on civilians so, oh that's a good point you know, the attack on pearl harbor and the the, the, the bombing of the main the sinking of the main were both Attacks on military targets. So, so I think that may account for it. Mm. I have to confess, I don't know how is there a memorial. There must be a memorial in Oklahoma City after that bombing. And when did it go up? I don't know. There is one. It's a very moving memorial. I've uh, been there quite briefly. Um, I would have stayed longer, which didn't have a chance to. Uh, and I think that went up maybe a decade afterwards. Right. Okay. But that's the. I actually think the Oklahoma City bombing is 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 the closest Most analog to nine eleven. Mm-hmm. In many respects, in that although a federal building was targeted, have you been to the nine eleven memorial? I have, and it's great. It's it's very moving. Moving It's very appropriate. Sorry, great is the wrong word. I apologize. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's actually quite a fitting memorial. I think it's quite a. I think it's quite a beautiful memorial, and I think it's appropriate. I'm curious to see how the exhibits there. I've also been there, and I I agree with you. That's quite moving. I'm curious to see how the exhibits there evolve over time. Because, you know, the exhibits in the museum are very much about the events of the day and the experience of different people on that day and the experience of people in the towers and the first responders. But the museum is going to have to reckon with the sort of long-term consequences of 9-11, you know, and then how do you make sense then of of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that grew out of 9-11 and all these other things we've been talking about. Um... I can envision that museum being a very different kind of place in 20 years from now than it is today as they have to sort of deal with the, the consequences of it. Well, and that would be interesting. In fact, one thing, David, if I can add a correction mm. to myself, my earlier comment, uh, um, and, and one of the one of the things that's distressing about the way we think about 9-11 is those 3,000 American lives, those 3,000 lives primarily Americans, mm. not only Americans, who died that day. That's a terrible tragedy, but we've had so many lives ruined since then. Mm. And I mentioned the the wounded, the U.S. wounded and killed in, in the wars and the suicides. I mentioned the refugees. I also meant to mention the, and we don't have a figure for this, mm. an accurate figure, the hundreds of thousands of people, mainly civilians, who are also civilians, um, killed in the wider Middle East in those conflicts. So so in, in the 9-11 memorial is incredibly moving, but we also have to, you, you've got to reckon for those people who are not memorialized as yet. Yeah, I think. Well, Sorry, and, I should have mentioned and, that when you know, I when I was running think, think, thinking so. about. Um, you mentioned that our students don't remember nine eleven because they weren't alive. 
looking at Afghanistan, the population of Afghanistan is extraordinarily young. You know, the, the number of, uh, I think it's something like 60% of the population is below the age of 20, which means that the majority of people who are living in Afghanistan have only known U.S. occupation, have no memory of 9-11 because they were not alive yet. So you think about what's their experience going to be going forward. I think that's going to be, uh, I mean, the United States is going to have to, and the world is going to have to reckon with um, Well, we will have to revisit this in 10 years and see see how the commemorations of, of, of 9-11 have uh, changed over time. Because I envision that they, they do change over time, right? The, the, the anniversaries, how Americans and people generally celebrate or commemorate events. When we think about, you know, Memorial Day, when Memorial Day became a national holiday in the, in the second half of the 19th century, it was a very solemn holiday. And... For some Americans, Memorial Day remains a very solemn holiday, but for other people, it's a long weekend. It's a long Vet, weekend. Veterans, or Veterans yeah. Day is the same same thing, where, where for some people, it's a very solemn holiday. For other people, it's an opportunity to buy a mattress. Right. Um, and we, there are choices to be made, right? Thinking about the ways in which November 11th is commemorated in the UK is very different than the way it's commemorated in the United States. Um, and, and so I think we're, we're, the American people are going to have to make some choices about what's what's the right way to, to sort of think about this moment and, and that this particular date and how we're going to, to commemorate it. Uh, I think we're probably time for last drops, Frank. What, what do we got? Right. That can, um... <laughs> I, I, I am going to uh, try the patient, your patience and the patience of our listeners. Cause mm. um, we occasionally allow two last drops, which is oxymoronic. I've actually got three this week. Um, although I, I maybe maybe bear you with might me. have needed three drams to get these. Yeah, well, this, this is, this yeah, is this heavy is, stuff. This is a pretty grim episode, and actually one of them relates directly to to, to, to one of your most recent comments, mm. which is I want to begin by endorsing, and I can't endorse it strongly enough, an article that's in the current issue of the New Yorker, the seven the, the September thirteenth issue of the New Yorker, by Anand Gopal, and it's called The Other Afghan Women, and. It is. It focuses on exactly the question or the the, the uh, comment you just made. It looks at it, its focus. Uh, Gopal went and interviewed uh, women primarily in the Sangin Valley in Helmand Province in Afghanistan. So he focused on rural Afghanistan and the experience of the war on terror and its aftermath. And the focus of the of the essay is a woman named Shakira. Um, who's in her early 40s, and her life has been entirely shaped by war. Um, first, you know, the, the, the Soviets were in Afghanistan and when she was a very young child, and then the, there was the initial rise of the Taliban, followed by the United States and its allies invading the country, etc., etc. And it's an incredibly powerful and moving piece of journalism. It's a very good piece of history, actually, because it provides the history of the past 40 years to some extent. But it also provides a, f a perspective on the war on terror from the, uh, the kind of perspective we don't often get in, in certainly U.S. media, mm. looking at the kind of people, uh, looking at those people in, in other countries, in this case Afghanistan, who are on the receiving end of this conflict. Uh, and it, 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 I can't recommend it strongly enough. So that's the other Afghan woman by Anand Gopal. Uh, and then I've got two related to, to um, 
history uh, or the longer span of history. I want to recommend an episode of the Sound Expertise podcast. And I have to confess, I didn't know, I've never heard of this podcast before, but there was a brief. They haven't heard of us. So. No, that's true. There was a brief uh, um, flurry of attention to this episode. It's from May of this year, May 11, 2021, uh, on social media earlier this week. And it's an episode. Uh, the, 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 the podcast is hosted by a guy named Will Robin, but the episode features the research of a man named David Hunter, who's, um, uh, who is retired from the University of Texas at Austin, but it's on Handel, the, the, the composer Handel and the slave trade, and his links and investment in the slave trade, and it raises all kinds of interesting questions, the kind we've talked about over the months, in months and years, about how we reckon with the history of of slavery and enslavement and uh, basically the fact that slavery touched almost everything (laughs) in the 18th century world. And it's a very thoughtful and and engaging podcast episode. And I finally want to end on a sad note and, and mark the passing of Betty Wood, who was a life fellow at Girton College in Cambridge. She was one of the uh, kind of, she's not as well known as some of the people we've talked about in recent weeks who've regretfully, regrettably passed away like Gary Nash or, 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 um, uh, Bob Middlecoff, but but Betty Wood was a real. She was the kind of uh, she was at the center of the study of early America in in Britain. She was a lecturer at Cambridge for many many years. She was an expert on slavery in colonial Georgia in particular, but she was a central figure in the uh, establishment of the British group in early American history, which mm-hmm. is a very very convivial. Uh, scholarly organization and Betty Wood as represented by the um, she was a historian's historian I think you could say she wouldn't have been as widely known to the public as some of the others we've discussed in recent weeks but um, but her books are extraordinary her books are extraordinary and she was a very very nice person very nice but I, I only met her a couple of times but she was a very nice person so those are my three last drops so so uh, yeah all right well I, I, I likewise I only I was very familiar with her, her scholarship. I only I only met Betty Wood once um, at uh, the at the British group of, of early American historians. They they had a uh, some events a few a few years ago to to sort of celebrate her career and and, and her uh, you know they had many of her former students come and, and speak about her uh, influence on them uh, and the influence of her work. Uh, and so I want to endorse uh, the British Group of Early American Historians, which is having their conference tomorrow. And they know how to party. But, well, it's going to be online, so I don't know what the parties are going to be like. But, um, yeah, it's online, and it's uh, I think my understanding is registration is free, uh, and they're having it's a one-day conference. So if you uh, are listening to this podcast right after it comes out, uh, you know, you can still sign up, and I'll have notes, the links in the show notes for people who are interested in participating there. There's some... Papers being presented and some some reflections on. You are participating, are you? I, I am I am giving a, a brief comment uh, on a panel uh, as part of this conference. You get, if you want more of me and you want to, that I'm going to be talking about the uh, American History Workshop that we do here at Edinburgh, and I'll be talking about uh, SASA um, and, and how both have responded to the pandemic and going online and whatnot, and how choices, good, bad, and otherwise, that were made. I made choices that were made. Um, <laughs> Don't use the passive voice, book. David. Right. Anyway. <laughs> cheers, know, David. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. 
The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 